Well, good morning. This morning, we're going to be beginning a new series in the book of Colossians. And so whenever you have me in the pulpit, I'll just pick up right where we left off in the book of Colossians. So for this week and the next three, Lord willing, we'll be in Colossians together. So why the book of Colossians? I'll just throw that out right at the beginning. Uh, Their situation is not all that different from ours. It's a letter written to a church in Colossae that was rattled. They were rattled by false teaching that was swelling in popularity. So what was it? What was that false teaching? And scholars have said it's notoriously hard to pin down exactly what the Colossian false teaching was, probably because it was a Heinz 57 blend of a lot of different errors. It was Christianity plus whatever was popular in their day. So that meant it was Christianity plus legalism. It was Christianity plus pagan ideology. It was Christianity plus asceticism. And it was all these things kind of blended together and packaged together to say, hey, you believe in Jesus Christ? It's a great start. But what you really need for life, what you really need to rise to the next level, what you really need to enjoy spiritual fullness to have true wisdom, to have power over your circumstances. Well, what you need is to to come over here, hear this teaching, download this lesson, and implement all these things, and then you'll be good. So it's not hard to imagine how this might have affected a young church in Colossae. They might have been thinking, am I okay? Am I missing something? Is Jesus enough? Is the gospel enough? Um, There was a Presbyterian pastor by the name of Robert Dabney in the 1800s who became very depressed and discouraged and full of doubt, which, by the way, goes to show us that even the greatest among us can um, be downcast at times. But in this season, a friend wrote him a letter that helped him get him out of this pit that he was in. And his friend wrote and said, look, when you're riding along a path on your horse, and you come to a bridge, and you're concerned about its ability to hold you up, what do you do? You don't jump off the horse and begin examining yourself and all your qualities and all your emotions. No, you jump off your horse, and you start examining the bridge itself to see if it's sturdy, to see if it's worthy of your trust, to see if it's able to hold you up. And so this is Paul's remedy for rattled Christians in Colossae. And it's Paul's remedy to us this morning. Paul points again and again in this book to our strong and mighty, sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might be reassured and that we might, be, might not be led astray by the myriad of voices that are swirling around us saying this way to life, suggesting that we lack something, saying that real life is found over here. So let's give our attention to God's word now. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, 
Of this you heard, you have heard before in the word of truth, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we consider his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. We pray that it would be what your word itself tells us, that in the unfolding of your word, you give light. We pray that you would give light to our hearts, that we might see and understand the things that you've given us clearly, that we might put our hope afresh in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> a sports reporter once asked Tom Brady which of his Super, Super Bowl rings was his favorite. And his answer was the next one. So I'm glad Tom was bold enough to be honest because I believe he opens up a window to what's true about all of our hearts. The next ring has more allure to our hearts oftentimes than the, ones that we, the things that we already have. And so I don't care who you are. There is something in your life right now to which your heart is daydreaming about, which is saying, if I had that, then I'd have joy, peace, security. It may be the next cool thing that's on the horizon for you. It may be the next, I don't know, promotion. It may be the next city you get to move to. It may be, if you're single, it may be the next relationship. If you're married, it may be the next phase of life that you're looking to, that thing that will give me new life that I, I long for. Whatever it is, our heart's default mode is to attach itself to whatever is seeming to promise, make this promise of life and security and peace. And so this is where the false teaching in Colossae was having its heyday. It offered to be the next cool thing that would deliver us from our insecurity. But Paul reassures them with this opening prayer to his letter. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul thanks God that they have heard the true gospel and that they are bearing the marks of authentic faith. In other words, in contrast to the voices of the false teachers, Paul is saying, you're set. You're good. In Jesus and in the gospel, you have everything you need. You don't have to keep proving yourself. You don't have to keep looking for the next cool thing that's on the horizon. You can rest and grow in the gospel. And so the main point I want us to consider in our time together this morning is as you treasure the gospel, you'll produce its fruit. As you treasure the gospel, you'll produce its fruit. So we'll look at this in three points. The first is we're going to look at the gospel seed and then the gospel fruit. And then finally, your new status. So first, the gospel seed. Part of Paul's reassurance to the rattled church here is to point to the sufficient and life-giving power of the gospel. So, so what is this gospel that's so powerful? What is this gospel that we might treasure it and produce its fruit? If you look with me in verses 5 and 8, it says, Of this, in the middle of verse 5, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So the gospel is equated to the word of truth. And it says later, which has come to you. So the gospel is a message that comes to you. 
And it, he talks about how it bears fruit and is an increasing all over the world. And so the gospel is something that bears fruit everywhere that it goes, everywhere that it's received. It bears fruit. No matter where you are in the world, no matter what culture you're in, the gospel is powerful. And so we need to look more closely at what, what does this word gospel mean in the original Greek? I think we learn a lot from that. And perhaps you've heard of this before. But the compound, the word gospel comes from a compound Greek word, euangelion. Um, so the first part of that word is eu, eu, meaning good or joyful. And the second part of that word is angelion, which means message. Or you might hear the word angel in that word. That's where we get the word angel. Angel basically means messenger. So you put that together, put that compound word together, you have good news, glad tidings. Uh, you have a message that brings great joy. And so <clears throat> what's interesting about this word is that it was not created by Christians. It was actually just appropriated by Christians. So this word already had a use and meaning of its own in the Greek language long before Christianity. And so it was a word that was used for historic, life-altering news. So not just everyday news, but this was historic, landmark news. And it was news about something that has been done for you. News about something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. So it's historic, life-altering news about something done for you that changes your status forever. So let's think about how that was used you know, in, in that day. Um, for example, we're talking about Colossae. I haven't mentioned this yet. Colossae is a, a city in, right in the middle of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so probably about 300 years before Paul wrote this letter, um, this city was under the rule and reign of the emperor of Persia. And so they would have been under his thumb. They would have been his slaves. Uh, all that was true until Alexander the Great from Greece came in and defeated Persian troops in a battle far away from Colossae. And when that happened, heralds and messengers, or you could say evangelists, went out with good news to carry it to everyone to whom that battle impacted. And so an evangelist would have traveled to Colossae and announced, Alexander the Great has won. He has defeated Darius III. He has fought and he has won for you and he has liberated you. You are now free. You're no longer slaves, but you're free. So do you see? Like a gospel is history-making news. It's something done for you that changes your status forever. So now, what do we do with the gospel? When a gospel comes to you, what's your response? So you can either receive it, believe it, and are changed by it, or you can reject it and keep living as you were before. So if they receive this good news of Alexander's victory over Persia, they would have no longer lived as slaves. They would have lived as free people. They would have probably sent a tribute and thanks to Alexander and, and sought to live out faithfully towards him. But if they rejected this historic news, well, they would still be living as slaves to Persia. They would still be acting as if they're loyal to Persia, which would not be wise when Alexander the Great rolled back through town. So that's what a gospel is. But what is the gospel that Paul mentions in verse 5? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It's that though we turned from God, though we rejected him, though we made a mess of his world, he sent his son into this mess to redeem it and to save us. It's a gospel in the sense that it's historic. Like Jesus actually came in space and time and lived a perfect life and died and rose again. Like that element is, is significant, is, is of extreme significance. Like this actually happened in history. And it's a gospel in the sense that it's something done for you. It's that he lived, he died, he rose again, all for you. He took on the battle against sin and death and won. He took on the punishment that you deserved and did away with it. He lived a life of perfect obedience and we didn't. We weren't on the battlefield. We weren't there. We weren't even in the vicinity. Yet he fought for us and won. And that message, that gospel comes to us proclaiming that that he has done something for you that changes your status forever. Christ's victory means for you the forgiveness of your sins. It means the beginning of a new life in him. It means that we're no longer slaves, but he has reunited us to God the Father. We are adopted sons through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have to press pause here and take notice of this. Christianity is the only belief system. It's the only world religion that comes to you in the form of a gospel. All other world religions come to you in the form of advice. Basically saying, here's what you must do. Then God will accept you. Here's what you must practice. And then you'll arrive at enlightenment or nirvana or whatever that system might be putting before you. Religion is always saying, do. But the Christian gospel through Jesus Christ says, done finished. Jesus literally says from the cross, it is finished. He did all that was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins and for our acceptance to be reunited with God forever. It's a gospel. He says, he proclaims done over us. So it's possible to have grown up in the Bible Belt South, very aware of this myself, to have grown up around the gospel, yet approach Christianity as if it's not a gospel, but it's, it's a religion. It's a, thing, it's a list of do's and don'ts that I have to do to earn my acceptance to God. So do you think that God accepts you based on your performance record that you submit to him at the end of your life? Or do you know the gospel? Do you know that God accepts you based on Christ's performance record for you that he accomplished and submitted in your place? Paul says the day you understand that is the day you become a Christian. The day you understand that is the day you become a Christian. He says that in verse 6. He tells the Colossians, the day you heard the gospel and understood the grace of God and truth, that's the day you became a Christian. When When by God's grace, you come to grasp his grace for you, that it's not just a a concept or a theory, but it's a real, it's real and it's undeserved and it's unmerited favor towards you when you deserve the opposite, when you deserve punishment, the day you get that, that that's how God relates to you is the day you become a Christian. Um, Jonathan Edwards helpfully said one time, made this distinction that you can know honey is sweet by one of two ways. You can know honey is sweet, I guess, intellectually by reading about it, learning about it, or you can know honey is sweet experientially, personally. You can know it by taste. And so Paul is talking about knowing God's grace in that second way. So my question for you is, have you tasted 
the gospel's sweetness? Can, you, can your heart sing like the children this morning that said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? Do you know the grace of God in truth? Has the gospel seed landed in your heart? And is it something that you continually treasure? As you treasure the gospel, you'll produce its fruit. Let's now examine what, what is that fruit that the gospel produces as we treasure it. What's the fruit? Um, four things I want us to consider under this heading of fruit. It's uh, gratitude, faith, love, and hope. First, let's look at gratitude. Look with me in verse 3. Paul says, we always thank God. So this whole section that we just read is a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul shows us that implicitly, one of the defining marks of being a Christian of treasuring the gospel is that your whole life is a life of gratitude. Your whole life is a joyful response to God's grace towards you in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can look at the Colossian church with all its issues and all its problems and all its errors that are going on flying around, around it, and he can say, praise God for you. Praise God for you. I've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. I've heard of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you're bearing the fruit. You're bearing the marks of those who have been transformed by God's grace. Praise God for you. Or in other words, if Paul, if Paul spoke Mississippian, he might have said this. You're a turtle on a fence post. Y'all know what I mean by that? You're a turtle on a fence post. When you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, what can you conclude? It didn't get there on its own. And so something helped it get there. It's not in its own nature, and it's not in its own ability to do that. And it's the same with you. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, and if that faith is manifesting itself in love, and it's overflowing with hope, then you're a turtle on a fence post. You didn't get there on your own. The Lord has had great mercy on you and has produced faith, hope, and love in you, things that you yourself couldn't produce. And so our response to this is nothing but gratitude for our whole lives. And now when you, when you keep your heart in this kind of frame, when you keep your heart in the frame of gratitude, it has a profound effect on your life. When you keep your heart in this frame of gratitude, it has a profound effect on your life. Um, imagine that I book a nice beach vacation for me and my family. Imagine I've been saving up for months to do this, I've been making sacrifices here and there to be able to pay for it. And the whole time, I am very aware of how much everything costs. And so, I get mad if I have to wait at the front desk because the front desk person made a mistake and I have to wait. And this person's cutting into my vacation time that I paid for. Or imagine, you know, we go to the nicest dinner, costs a lot of money, and my food comes out and it's not a 10 out of 10. Like, I'm frustrated. I'm upset. I'm mad because my hard-earned money paid for this. I deserve better. Well, now compare that to uh, a couple of weeks ago when Mackenzie Hutton and I got to go to the beach with my parents. And they paid for everything. And let me tell you, that kind of vacation is, totally, is a totally different mindset than the first one I described. The same types of irritations come up, right? 
Like there's you know, a problem at the front desk. We have to wait. But I can look at the front desk pers- person and be like, it's no big deal. Like, this is awesome. Like, we're just happy to be here. Like, I don't have to pay for anything. Um, <laughs> or the, the food comes out not a 10 out of 10. It's, maybe it's a 1 out of 10. But I can be like, well, that's, that's fine. It's no big deal. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, this, this is all a gift. And so the point is, the, the more you treasure the gospel the less you take up the mindset that I deserve better. And the more you take joy in the reality that Christ has loved you and forgiven you. And so there really is something to the practice of making yourself stop and give thanks to God. Making yourself stop and give thanks to God for something, anything. The gospel, I don't care what it is. Because when you feel yourself triggered by frustration, when you feel yourself turning into Ebenezer Scrooge, like stopping and making yourself give thanks does something good to your heart. It's like taking a vitamin. It's like ordering a salad. Like it's just always a good idea to do that, I guess. Um, It gets your heart. When you give thanks, it gets your heart out of this rut of, I deserve this. And it puts you back into the right frame of, I'm a beloved child in the care of a good father. And so really, do whatever it takes. Set a reminder on your phone, whatever. Force yourself to stop and give thanks to God for something. And that has a profound effect on our hearts. Um, It's always a good idea because it always does our hearts good. So treasuring the gospel produces this fruit of gratitude, but it also produces three other fruits Faith, hope, and love. So these three always pop up together, especially in Paul's letters, faith, hope, and love. So let's take them as they're presented to us. First, Paul mentions faith. He says he has heard of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we ask the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And so luckily, there's a Westminster Shorter Catechism question that answers that exact question. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. So faith receives and rests upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And that means faith can walk through life. Faith can walk through difficult trials. Faith faith can walk through difficult circumstances with a confidence that Jesus reigns, that Jesus is worthy of our trust, and that he's with us. Second, Paul mentions that he has heard of their love for all the saints. This, this is the second fruit of love. He hasn't heard that they have only placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but he hears that this faith has worked itself out in the fruit of love. That instead of living how we normally do in our default mode of just being self-centered, they have become a new creation. They have been transformed by the self-giving love of God. And they now take delight to replicate that love that they have received and give of themselves towards the good of others. And so Paul, he specifically mentions here um, that it's love for all the saints. And that specifically probably likely refers to how the Colossians likely jumped right in to aid and assist Uh, their Christian brothers and sisters around the Roman Empire who were struggling, who were suffering, who were, we know at the time there was a famine in Palestine, and we know at the time there was widespread um, persecution beginning 
And so the Colossian church jumped right in and said, your burden is mine. Um, and they gave of themselves. So Paul sees that and commends it. You're producing fruit. Third, Paul mentions hope. Uh, but he does so in a way, I don't know if you notice this, that he emphasizes hope over the first two. He says, I give thanks because I heard of your faith and love because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. So he's saying that faith and love are motivated by hope. That hope has this motivating effect on the other two fruits. This isn't to say one is better than the other here. It's saying that these are all interconnected. If you increase one, you're going to increase the others. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, the same triad is mentioned, faith, hope, and love. But Paul's emphasis there is on love. Well, here to the Colossians, Paul wants to emphasize hope. So what do we make of this emphasis? What do we make of hope? What do we mean by hope? And I first want to say hope, what hope is not. Hope is not wishful thinking. That's how we often use this phrase hope in our English language. For example, I might say, I hope that Mississippi State will win the national championship in football. So what I mean by that, I'm basically saying I have no clue what will happen. Um, And it is very likely that that will not happen. But it'd be nice if it did happen. Biblical hope is not like that at all. Biblical hope is sure. It's confident expectation. It's fervent yearning. It's a patient waiting on the fulfillment of the promises of God. That's biblical hope. It's like being in debt way over your head. You know, if you're in that situation, you're stressed out, you can't sleep at night. But one day, let's say you get a letter in the mail from your long-lost uncle. And he says in the letter that he's naming you as his beneficiary for his fortune. So in the meantime, that is going to be kept aside for you. It's going to be stored up in a bank until the appointed time. And so what do you think that news would do to you? It's not a hope that says, I I wish a fortune would come to me. But it's something that says, a fortune is coming to me. It's already in the bank for me. I don't have to be stressed. I don't have to, I can sleep easily now. I can endure my daily challenges now with more of a spring in my step, with more joy in my heart. Because a fortune that's real with my name on it is coming to me. And it's only a matter of time. That's biblical hope. It's a hope that's been laid up for us in heaven. It's what Peter calls in 1 Peter chapter 1, a living hope that we've born, been born again into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you. So if you're in Christ, he is your hope. If you're in Christ, your hope is in heaven. It's being kept there. It's being reserved for you. So hope is something Paul is specially emphasizing here because the false teachers are suggesting to this church that they lack something. And that they need to take up their teaching. They need to take up this thing over here. That they might have the good life now. There's no need to be patiently waiting. But Paul's logic is saying, no. The best that those liars can offer you isn't worth comparing to the hope that you have that's already secure. That's waiting in heaven for you. This, This hope motivates your faith and love. This hope... It motivates hope in the sense that because this hope is yours and because you know how the story ends, you can walk through those difficult circumstances with trust. 
And this hope motivates love all the more because if this hope really is yours and you really are secure and you, set, you bank all your hope on it, you can actually give of yourself all the more. You can give of your time. You can give of your resources. You can give of your gifts for the good of, of others. And you can look forward to that day when you'll be reunited with Jesus. And you, you can look forward and be comforted in the present knowing that even if I give a cup of water for his glory, he says he's going to celebrate that with us. He's going to reward that. So as you treasure the gospel, you will produce its fruit. You'll produce its fruits of, of gratitude, faith, hope, and love. But the last point to consider, how are, how are we to resist this ever-present allure to the next cool thing, to what's popular? And Paul's answer is to be, behold your new status. Despite all their issues going on in the Colossian church, Paul calls them something amazing in verse 2. He addresses them and says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, they are saints, which means they are, literally means they are holy ones, which means they, they have been set apart for special use by God. That doesn't mean that, you know, they are these you know, stained glass figures this elite few of, of elite Christians um, that, you know, they don't have a halo over their head. There's not light beaming down on them. This is a common phrase, the most common phrase applied to Christians in the, in the New Testament. The most common way Christians are referred to in the New Testament are saints, holy ones. And it's interesting to look back at the Old Testament and the way the Old Testament uses this word, holy, holy ones, um, because there's certain places where inanimate objects are called holy to the Lord. You know, the things like bowls in the temple, cups in the temple are called holy to the Lord. Now, was it because these bowls were molecularly superior than other bowls that they were called holy? No, it was because they were his. They were set apart for his special use. They were reserved for him and his use only. So to be called a saint, a holy one, means that you're his. You're set apart for him. You're reserved for Jesus Christ as a bride is reserved for her husband. So why does all this matter? It matters because it undermines the lie that the false teachers used and the world still uses today. They, they will say to you, yeah, you have faith in Jesus, but there's, there's something lacking in you. You need this thing over here. And as you hear that, you yourself might start to think, you know, I, if I look at myself, I am lacking. I'm not a saint. I have all these struggles and recurring sin issues. Like, I'm second class at best. But Paul's message to the false teachers is this. You are out of your mind. Don't you know that it's not smart to talk about Lois Lane like that in front of Superman? You know who Lois Lane is? It's Superman's girl. So yeah, maybe you can point to out some flaws in Lois Lane and weaknesses in her. But at the end of the day, that really doesn't matter because she is the object of Superman's love and affection. She's the one he's committed to. So you could say, though she's lacking in certain things, you could say she's not lacking at all because she's connected to him. So when we transition this logic to the gospel, 
We see that you are the object of Jesus' love and affection. You're the one he's committed to. You're the one he's preparing a place for right now in heaven. You are a saint. You are set apart for his special love. And you don't need anything new. You only need to deepen your roots in this gospel. You only need to realize more and more the love that he already has for you. And so to close, perhaps there's someone wondering, how can I, a sinner who's failed so much, how can I be called a saint? It seems laughable. And it's remember the gospel. Jesus Christ was the only holy one who ever lived a perfectly holy life on this earth. And he agreed with God, his father, to take your judgment day before judgment day. He, he agreed with him to take all your sin, the punishment for your sin early in 33 AD, outside Jerusalem on a Roman cross. And there your judgment fell on him and it was paid for and done away with forever. And he gives you, through faith, his perfect and holy status that you might belong to him forever. It's as you treasure this gospel that you will bear its fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you that though we are often discouraged, that we are offered, often allured by other things, it is your grace that comes after us again and again and points us to the cross and points us to the resurrection and it points us to where you are now. You're interceding for us and you're making us new. We pray that you'd uh, work this truth in our hearts that we might produce its fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.